кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. If Vladimir Putin's goal in invading Ukraine was to push NATO and the EU out of Eastern Europe, he has failed miserably. Because suddenly, Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO, a prospect highly unlikely just months ago. Suddenly, the prospect of Ukraine joining the EU, unthinkable just months ago, is now a very real possibility. And suddenly, we are entering into a whole new era of European security. What will it look like? Well, I have just the guests to unpack all that for us, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from downtown Washington, D.C. is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is the director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Welcome back to The Vertical, Max. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Great to have you. So recently, I've been reading your, what you've been writing. In a recent piece you wrote called, uh, titled The Hour of Europe, you argued that it was time to, to think big about European security. With NATO revitalized, with Finland and Sweden, Sweden joining the alliance, with the EU again thinking about enlargement, and with the transatlantic bond being strengthened in the wake of Russia's aggression in Ukraine, we appear to be entering a new period of European security. Just to get us the ball rolling in a really broad sense, how do you see European security developing in this new environment and going forward? Well, you know, I think this is the, one of the major geopolitical questions that come out of this conflict is whether uh, Europe will seize this moment and, and transform itself to be, I think, a much more capable and stronger uh, global actor. Uh, and I think we're, we're beginning to see that, right? You know, the previous sort of 15 years of the EU since the Lisbon Treaty has been kind of a period of some progress, but Europe has been beset by crisis after crisis from the Euro crisis, from the migration crisis to COVID uh, to Brexit. And now I think we're actually with a period where the EU with the new array of governments in, in France, with Macron reelected, with the new German government which uh, has a very pro-EU bent. It's not that Merkel was anti-EU, but she was a very status quo politician. And there's a lot of uh, potential for the EU to, to, to I, I think, take some much bolder steps when it comes to uh, its position in the world, how it's organized. We now see talk of, of potential treaty reform and, and EU enlargement. So I think there's a big opportunity for Europe to transform how it's structured, to move in a new direction. And at the very least, we're seeing that on the defense spending side. Look, Germany announcing that it's going to spend at least 100 billion euros on defense is a transformative moment. Mm -hmm. uh, the German military is in incredibly weak state. Uh, right now, its, its planes aren't ready to fly, its tanks aren't ready to roll, and its, sea, and its ships aren't ready to sail. But yet, Germany is the kind of main economic power of Europe. 
And if it can translate that economic power to the military side, and it's going to do that, I think, through this substantial investment, that's going to dramatically change how Europe is is positioned and postured both toward Russia and I think the rest of the world. How, how much do you think this change um, in the EU with regard to spend, defense spending, with regard to enlargement, with regard to treaty reform, how much is this being driven by the Russian aggression in Ukraine or with these organic processes that were already in play? Well, like everything, there were there were facets of this that were in play. I think COVID had a big uh, impact where uh, right after COVID hit, the EU for the first time borrowed 800 billion euros. This was sort of seen as this big transformative moment where it borrowed 800 billion euros to invest in this economic recovery. And then suddenly uh, with this crisis, Europe gets that the previous sort of 25, 30 years of uh, change through trade, which was the main German model of of economic integration would lead to changing the the partner that you were collaborating with would lead to this liberalization. Right. And we know that that's not the case with Russia, yeah. that that had not worked and that's not the case with China. And that's very tough, I think, from a European perspective to, to really come to grips with because that frankly is the European experience, was that economic integration, right. the, the European community led to liberalization, strength and democracy. So this has been, I think, a real change where suddenly geopolitics is front and center. We had seen a lot of these trends before. The U European Commission, through von der Leyen, had talked it about itself as a geopolitical commission right. prior to this crisis. And so now what you're seeing is suddenly the Europeans, the EU, realizes that, well, they have a security assistance fund. They call it the European Peace Facility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but now they're, you know, in, in typical EU fashion, but they're using that to suddenly provide Ukraine with $1.5 billion uh, in, in weaponry. That's a huge shift for the Europeans, and it's happening uh, overnight. Yeah, and you talked about the defense spending, and I, I wanted to kind of revive an old conversation you and I had had uh, years ago. It seems like centuries ago, because it was before the pandemic and the before times. But you, there's, there's a lot of people who look at this, the EU creating its own kind of defense personality as something in opposition to NATO. Um, there seems to be this 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 feeling that this is a zero sum game. You don't see it that way. You see that the EU kind of creating its own defense personality, its own its own defense identity. You see this as complementary to NATO, which is not the main is not the the most commonly held position. How, how would you explain that? So look, you know, there's obviously going to be bureaucratic tension between two between the EU and NATO when it comes to military issues. But in in, in avoiding duplication is very important. But we've sort of allowed ourselves to sort of set this goal of avoiding duplication with, as the end-all and be-all of our kind of approach to European defense. And what we've missed is that the EU is a political union, that you know, when the EU was formed, what did it do? It bestowed citizenship on Italians, on French, on mm -hmm. Lithuanians and Estonians, that you're dual citizens. You're a citizen of the EU and you're mm -hmm. a citizen of your home country. And it is natural that as this political union becomes more established, becomes more grounded, when now a whole new generation of Europeans have grown up as Europeans, mm -hmm. not just as uh, citizens of their own country, that entity, that union is going to want to assert itself in the world, is going to have interests that it wants to stand up for, want to get its people out of places like Kabul. And so I think it's natural that the EU is going to develop a defense identity, a defense uh, going to want to assert itself in defense. And instead of trying to oppose that, we need to figure out how to make that work with NATO. Because what is NATO? It is an alliance between US, Canada, and Europe in bringing right. us all together. 
And there's no reason why that can't still be the case if the EU begins to develop its own defense capacity. And the thing that I think people have missed is that the EU has the ability to conjure money now, to borrow from debt markets, to bring resources together, to integrate and pool, which is the thing that European defense is a disaster at. And how do you integrate your various national militaries? Well, that's what the EU has been doing for, uh, you know, since it was a coal and steel community, you know, way back in, in the 1950s. So I think it's about leveraging what the EU brings and figuring out what role for the right. EU in defense there is. So it kind of move into this situation where NATO would be what the U.S., Canada, the U.K. and in, in, in Europe, basically. There would be there would be four members, if you will. Well, I think it's about trying to develop a European pillar where what is defense right now from a national perspective within Europe? If you're thinking about it from a, from a Spanish perspective or a German perspective, it's European defense. It is about protecting European interests. And so I think it's how defense is con should be conceived of on a European level by Europeans. And so that means that we need to try to foster greater integration of a European pillar where the Europeans, I think, take more responsibility. And the U.S. is still there. We're still providing support, but maybe not everything. Maybe the Europeans can handle airlift. They can have air tankers that then refuel their own planes. Right. They aren't dependent on that for us. Uh, because we have global responsibilities. We need to be focused on Russia. We need to be focused on China. And we will be. But the Europeans, I think, by reorganizing themselves better, integrating more, can bring a lot more to the alliance. Right. Now, Europe is right now, it's, it's, it's cliche almost to say now how united Europe is over Russia right now, which is not usually the case in the past. Um, and I'm wondering, one of, the, one of the kind of questions I have as this situation moves forward, as this crisis develops, as this war develops, whether or not these divisions will reemerge. I mean, we're already seeing some troubling signs, like with Viktor Orban in Hungary holding up the European ban on Russian oil. We see Erdogan in Turkey making noises about stopping Finland and Sweden's accession into NATO. Do you think these these divisions will re reemerge and become a problem as this goes goes forward? Is this just a moment, or is this the new normal? So I think the answer is yes. There, the, these divisions will continue to be a problem. Uh, but I think in some ways they're hopefully manageable. I think the Hungary blocking the potential oil embargo um, is an incredible problem. I think the Hungarians have been very savvy about how they operate. They essentially, uh, you know, they support Russia sanctions and then they pick their moments to be a real pain. And they're trying to leverage this to gain money from the EU. But what this has also demonstrated, the Ukraine crisis and, and the potential discussion about uh, Ukraine enlargement is it's brought the issue of enlargement back on the table. And enlargement for the Balkans has effectively been dead. And the Europeans like to blame the Balkan countries, say, oh, well, they didn't make all the reforms needed. But that's not actually the case in, in the case of some countries. What's really happened is that the, when the EU expanded to 27, it became rather unwieldy. It's really hard to get 27 countries to all agree. Mm -hmm. And then you have an election go one way, or you have a country that basically moves against democracy as in the case of Hungary. And that one country can block a lot of things, can block progress. And we see it now with, with Russia oil sanctions, but it also comes to play for, for things that aren't that big of a deal. Like the EU wants to do a statement on the South China Sea and not a, not a huge deal, but you know they're gonna condemn China's, Chinese action in the South China Sea and then the Hungarians block it. And, and that's the sort of thing that prevents sort of a common EU foreign policy. So what we're seeing now with Ukraine is that if there's a big fight that's going to happen where the Eastern European states are pushing for enlargement, I think rightly so, 
But the Western European states like France and the Netherlands also have a point, which say, well, if we're going to enlarge and go over 30 countries, well, we got to reform the unanimity. It can't mm -hmm. be, you know, we got to get to qualitative majority voting. And what that means, if, if you're Estonian, you're 1.3 million people and you can block something that is going to be done for 450 million people. Right. You don't want to give up your veto over foreign policy, over the budget. And I think that's where the rubber is going to hit the road. Mm. I think the Balts and the Poles are going to have to make some compromises about how the EU is structured internally. And France and others are going to have to potentially make some compromises on enlargement. And I think that's something that we're going to have to really pay attention to over well, the coming years. And not only would Estonia be giving up their veto, but Hungary would be giving up its veto, which actually could move things forward a little bit, actually, especially right. on, on Russian-related matters. Sticking with this bit about divisions over Russia, I mean, a lot of this is driven by cynical commercial calculations that are being made on the part of certain lobbies in a lot of these countries. That's the politest way I could think of to say it. But um, now with sanctions in place, th these incentives are removed. For the, at least for the time being. And another thing I'm wondering going forward is, will these divisions maybe evaporate over time as the commercial incentive is removed from things like the German industrial lobby or the, yeah. certain energy interests in Europe? Um, or will they become a lightning rod to kind of normalize relations with Russia on the part of those who want to go back to the, the business as, as usual, which is highly profitable for them? Yeah, I think, let me caveat my earlier answer. I think there will always be divisions and challenges in getting all 27 EU members to agree. And the same exists in NATO, and we're seeing that with Turkey and, and Finland and, and Sweden. But what you've seen from Europe is, I think, going to be lasting in terms of the unity when it comes to Russia. It, has, it is a new era in how Germany, I think, is approaching, uh, approaching the world, not just Russia, but I think China as well. And that's something I think we'll, we'll see. Because what shifted is this sense that just we can economically engage with the Russians and that will result in some sort of broader political benefit. So that argument is just not gonna hold any water. Now, of course there's commercial interests, there's commercial interests here in the United States. And one of the things that I think caught everyone really off guard here in Washington, as they were designing sanctions packages, as they were engaging with the Europeans prior to the war, was how strong the European reaction was after Russian yeah. tanks started to roll into Ukraine because the assumption was the Europeans were going to be much softer than we were, you know, and that was playing out in these hypothetical exercises that if Russia invades, like, here's what we're going to do. And the Europeans were taking it seriously, but it's one thing to do it in a hypothetical way. But then as soon as those tanks went through, Zelensky talked to the European Council, the Europeans said, no, we're going to go forth with sanctions. What you're seeing is the bureaucratic effectiveness of the EU that they have some of the best bureaucrats in the world, and when you point them in a direction, they move. And I think the, the sanctions response has been incredibly strong. Now, the challenge that we're both going to have on the U.S. and European side is we were sanctioning fixed targets prior to this conflict, but now the targets are shifting. We we're, have to identify gaps, you know, perhaps parts of the Russian defense industry we didn't sanction or the Russian energy, energy sector that we didn't hit. So we're going to have to keep you know, upgrading the sanctions. We're going to have to maintain them. The Russians are going to try to get around them in all sort, sort of ways. We're going to have to start thinking about secondary sanctions. And what the Russians are hoping for is that we lose that bureaucratic momentum, we lose that energy that currently exists, and that we sort of set sanctions and then we forget them. And that's kind of what happened sort of 2014-15, 
that we stopped maintaining our sanctions mm-hmm. packages. The Russians adapted, the economy then sort of figures ways around it. And so I think we need to be in this for the long haul. And I think that's the, that's the question of whether Europe and us will be able to maintain that. And that's going to get tricky as uh, economies on both sides of the Atlantic uh, suffer, um, as inflation gets worse on both sides of the Atlantic. Some people are blaming this on the sanctions. I think that is not entirely accurate. There's a lot, there's a lot of factors at play here. But that's another thing the Russians are counting on. Um, I wanted to drill down a little bit now into NATO and EU enlargement uh, because the Finland and Sweden, this is this is happening remarkably quickly. Um, yeah. And from my perch, I think this is a game changer in terms of the alliance. I mean, I worry about Baltic security, as you know, a lot um, because yeah. I see I, I don't like how the Baltics are potentially able to be cut off from NATO and vulnerable to Russian aggression. Putting Finland and Sweden in the mix changes everything there, especially in terms of the security of of the Baltic region and the kind of the uh, NATO's vulnerable eastern flank. How do you see Finland and Sweden joining the alliance? How do you see this changing the alliance, and how do you see it changing European security? So. So I agree with you. I think this this is, uh, you know, incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important for for Sweden and Finland, both for their countries, uh, but but for the alliance as a whole. I do think that some of the the transformational impact of them joining has sort of already been realized. The reaction post 2014 was quite strong. Uh, I I went to the uh, island of Gotland in 2015 on, on holiday and there was no Swedish military presence around. There was maybe a few Swedish cops there, but it's one of the most you know, geopolitically important islands right. or locations in the Baltic, uh, where if the Russians took it, they could potentially cut off the straits between Malmo and Copenhagen. And shortly thereafter, the Swedes did a military exercise and then just left forces there and have begun to rearm mm. and remilitarize. You know, Swedes buying Patriot, the, the Finns buying F-35. So we've seen a real energy and attention on both Finland and Sweden on the potential threat from Russia since since 2014 and really Finland you know prior to that uh, as well I mean they the Finns never really had a peace dividend but I think it's critical for NATO's sort of operational planning um, in how we conceive of the battle space for potential reinforcement of the the, the Baltic states and our ability our supply lines our, uh, their port access and it also requires the Russians to now think uh, you know, they have a huge problem. We all tend to think about what Russia does to us and the threat Russia poses to us. But, you know, they have to account for the fact that they now their border with NATO has just dramatically expanded. Yep. Uh, and that if they were going to, you know, get into a NATO contingency, that's something they have to pay uh, really close attention to. So in integrating, I think, the Arctic space with Norway, uh, now bringing the Arctic and the Baltics to- together with uh, Sweden and, and Norway, I think, it, what it does is just rationalize things, right? It ends the strategic ambiguity that existed about what would we do if, if Russia attacks Sweden or Finland. I think we would do a lot. I think the EU yeah. would be involved. I think there would, would be a fight. I think the Russians knew that. But it just sort of ends that strategic uh, ambiguity. And just one last point on this, sort of a quick anecdote, that you know, if you go to, the, to, to Stockholm, I suggest going to the Swedish Army Museum. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's, it's two floors in a room. The first floor you start is 1,600. The 1700s, it's like 30 years war. Sweden's involved in all these European conflicts. Second floor, Battle of Poltava. Sweden's right there. You know, seven, And then it stops because Sweden, after the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> right. completely goes neutral. And the final room is about Swedish peacekeeping, the Swedish defense industry in the 21st century, as if World War One, World War Two, and all right. everything else never happened. So I think we can under, understate what a dramatic transformation 
this is for a country like Sweden and also a country like Finland. I, that is, they're taking this incredibly seriously, and I think it's really dramatic, the impact that it'll have. Yeah, and a lot of this, you're right, was already baked in because Finland and Sweden were cooperating very closely with NATO already, training with NATO, um, even attending NATO summit, NATO ministerial, but formalizing it. And as you put it, eliminating this strategic ambiguity, actually, I think it is a major game changer. Before I jump to Ukraine, I wanted to ask you, because this I've been thinking about this myself too, Russia's erratic reaction to Finland and Sweden joining NATO. I mean, first they were threatening to put nuclear weapons in the Baltic, and then Putin was saying that's ah, not really a big deal um, in, in his, his latest comments. How do you assess the Russian reaction to this? I mean, there's not much they can do about it being yeah. tied down in Ukraine, but how do you assess the, the kind of very erratic and contradictory reaction we've seen? Well, I think they're flailing. I think the, the first initial response is to try to threaten everything you can can threaten, to, to warn them away from it, to get to, to, in the hope that the Finnish and Swedish populations would, would be nervous by that response and then not want to rock the boat. And of course, we sort of forget what happened to Montenegro in 2016 with the right. attempted coup uh, as Montenegro was you know, on the verge of joining NATO. But I think what we then see from Putin is that this is basically a fait accompli. You know, I think if this were 2015, 2016, we'd have to really be nervous about Russian active measures. And I think we should, still should be uh, to try to destabilize Finland and Sweden. But we've all become really attuned to the potential threat of uh, right. Russian political interference, Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda, other Russian espionage campaigns. And I think Swedish and Finnish intelligence, as well as U.S. and European intelligence agencies, are going to be really focused on this. There's a degree of resilience that we have built up as societies, I think, against some of Russia's active measures. And they're not sort of, you know, they don't have the element of surprise here. So I think this is sort of a recognition that Putin, there's not much he can do about it, especially as they're bogged down in Ukraine. And so better to try to not make a big deal out of it. I think that's where where we see Putin landing. Right. And if and if Finland and Sweden joining the alliance is a game changer, Ukraine actually being taken seriously as a candidate for European Union membership is I mean, I don't, I don't know what's bigger than a game changer, <laughs> a tournament yeah. changer. I, um, I mean, this is something that was unthinkable just months ago. And now. The way it's being talked about is like it's a done – I mean it's not a done deal, but it's, it looks like it's going to happen. Their membership application is being fast-tracked. How do you see that playing out? I mean this would be a – this is a country the size of France joining the EU. Yeah, I think the first thing from the, from the Russian perspective, you know, they've always been more worried about NATO than the EU. The Russians don't quite understand the, the EU. They're much like us. They're very confused by what the EU is and how it's structured, and they're very dismissive of it. And I think Ukrainians actually have a view that is, I think, quite savvy. So for Zelensky and for many Ukrainians, joining the EU is the penultimate goal because NATO gives you the security guarantee that being part of the political union, of being part of Europe, the vis-a-vis -vis travel, the ability to work anywhere, it, they, they really feel it. You really feel it when you're not- yeah, Ordinary citizens do, yeah. Yeah, and so I think Ukraine will have a long road to hoe. The big question is that whether they'll be granted candidate status. I hope and I think that, that you will go that route. But then we're going to have this conversation, you know, that's internal to the EU because it's not like just joining a club. It's not a multilateral organization. Right. There are it, it is like if a country, if Mexico wanted to join the United States, you have to join, you know, you have to adopt all our laws. Your court system has to be reformed. Right. You have to do all these things. And and so that is incredibly arduous. So Ukraine is going to have to meet certain standards. 
There are a lot of concerns about when the EU led in uh, some other countries, Romania, Bulgaria, that it, it kind of loosened some of its standards because it assumed by they would just come in and there would be a path toward getting rid of some of the corruption that exists there. Letting in Cyprus before it had a peace agreement with Turkey was now seen as a real mistake because now the incentives for Cyprus to actually negotiate just aren't there. So the peace talks there went nowhere. So I think there's a long road ahead for Ukraine, least of which has to play out on the battlefield and what is Ukraine's territory. You know, if Ukraine is a divided country and it is still claiming territory that is Russian and still at war with Russia, that's going to be really complicated. So there's that whole side of it. But then there's the side within the EU about they're going to have to do, I think, likely, you know, as Ukraine is going down this road, there's going to be a, a parallel track on the Brussels level about how do we reform the EU before we let in new members. And yeah. that's what's happened in the past, where before you let in members, you try to do all these reforms before they let in. And so they're signing up to a centrally reformed EU. And that, yeah. I think, those processes are going to work in parallel. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be complex. There's going to be many times where we're like, this isn't going anywhere. And then hopefully progress will, will continue. Right. Now, I would push back a little bit on the fact that, that Russia doesn't really care so much about the EU. I actually think they care as much, if not more, about the EU than they care about NATO. Because what the EU does, if Ukraine were to join the EU, it is off the table for Russia forever. It is a it, it, it's a European country. It, that's it. And all of the the democratic reform, the, the anti-corruption measures that are going to have to be taken are going to severely hinder Russia's ability to maneuver. They still do maneuver, of course, in EU countries, but it's not as easy as maneuvering in a non-EU member. So I, I'm, I, I think this might be the biggest penalty Russia pays for this invasion at the end of the day. I totally agree, Brian. I, I'm just not exactly sure if the Russians always see it that way. I think some, I think they should see it that way. But I think for them, that NATO would be the red line. I think that's why Zelensky, when they were beginning to have these talks and negotiations, was willing to sort of put NATO to the side, but not the EU membership. You know, I'm not sure the Russians would go for that, but, you know, hopefully it's not up to them. And that this is something that, that Ukraine can control its own mm -hmm. destiny. Uh, and that this is a, a conversation that's going to happen between Kiev and Brussels yeah. and not, you know, not going right. to involve Moscow. It's not, and nor should it involve Moscow. But I mean, yeah. I think that they they are it's almost aesthetically offended by the EU as an organization. Yeah. This idea of a, a horizontally integrated, co you know, co-equal you know, block of countries, that's not the way Russia views integration. They view inter integration as, as conquest and domination. And I think they, right. they, the very idea of the EU is offensive to them. And they prefer to deal with individual countries rather than a strong um, block. Do you, I mean, is NATO membership for Ukraine completely off the table? If they get into, if they survive this war, and they get into the EU. I mean, it's only natural that we're going to have to have this discussion about NATO membership. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think NATO membership for Ukraine should be off the table. I think everything should be on the table. I think, you know, some of this will be determined on the battlefield, the outcome of the war. Is there a negotiated settlement? Is Ukraine able to take back most of its territory or not? But I think, you know, we shouldn't, I think, as the West, take anything off the table about what the future prospects of Ukraine are. And we should uh, hope that basically that Ukraine gets to decide its future and that if it can, then I think we should should have a, a real conversation about NATO. And, you know, that will, I think, eventually we'll have to have, again, a security conversation with the Russians, hopefully after this conflict, where we can begin to have the kind of strategic stability, you know, the basic brass tacks about nuclear weapons and about, you know, conventional forces. 
Now, hopefully we can get back to that place. Right. Um, but there's a long way to go between between that conversation and um, and where we are right now. I mean, I I think we will eventually get back to that place, but it won't be back to that place like we were having with you know, with Russia in the in the early 2000s. I'm convinced. And I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this. I'm, I'm convinced we're moving into a Cold War style environment. Um, I think this is it's almost inevitable right now. I I tell my students that uh, we're about to enter a world that resembles more the world I grew up in than the world you grew up in. Um, the only questions are where are those lines going to be drawn in Europe, right? Uh, where are those lines going to be drawn in Ukraine? Is all of Ukraine going to be on the western side of the new Iron Curtain? Uh, is most of it, half of it, none? You know, yeah. we, we, this is what's being fought about. In the war, if we move back to a strategic stability discussion with Russia, it's going to more resemble the kind of discussions we had with the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. I think I don't see us going back to this 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 atmosphere of uh, trust that we or limited trust that we we had before. How do how do you see that? No, I totally agree, and 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 I wish I could say that I. I, I was not a child of the, of the Cold War, but definitely uh, experienced <laughs> some of it. Um, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's not. I think we are back in a, a, a new Cold War uh, with with Russia. I think it, you know, no two wars are the same. But I think we need to view this as as long as Vladimir Putin is, you know, in charge of Russia, that they are an adversary that is going to be seeking to undermine us, to weaken us. And you know, Secretary Austin may have said the quiet part out loud. It's yeah. probably not wise for him to have said that. Uh, but that is U.S. strategy, and that was the strategy during the Cold War to try to isolate, to contain, to weaken uh, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. And I think that that's the larger purpose of economic sanctions. That's what their objective was prior to this conflict. But I think that being said, Russia does have this incredibly large nuclear arsenal. And so at some point, there is going to be a Cold War style arms negotiation. And that's where I think there is the potential for dialogue and dialogue in the sense of to build some strategic stability very much in the Soviet right. U.S. Cold War context, not in the context of try, we're going to try to reset the relationship for the umpteen right. time to then see if we can have greater dialogue and, and, and improve the situation. Because as long as Putin is there, that is just not in the cards. And I think that's something we have to appreciate. And I would argue even if Putin isn't there, because I actually see the problem with Russia as systemic. I think Putin is one yes. particularly uh, dangerous manifestation of it, but I don't think the problem goes away with right. Putin. If we do move I, to that, those kind of Cold War Cold War style summits for strategic stability, the, the number of venues is rapidly decreasing given Sweden and Finland joining NATO, the number of yes, neutral I venues. Know. We can't hold them in Helsinki anymore. Um, yeah. it's, it's basically to, to down, Geneva, to, down to Geneva. Geneva, basically. That's that's that that's about it. Um, I mean, there was a time when we were able to do these things in Vienna or in in, in, in Helsinki. Uh, the one final thing before we moved into the second half, I, I did want to talk about energy policy. We touched on it a yeah. bit, but this is one of Europe's main vulnerabilities vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia. Uh, they're getting what is it? It's over thirty percent of their energy from Russia, if I'm not mistaken. And the the war in Ukraine has, of course, kind of changed that, but. This is not something you can do overnight, and you don't. And not everybody wants to do it. Not everybody wants to do it. Um, the momentum is for it right now. How long a process do you see of Europe kind of weaning itself off? How long is this going to take before we can get enough U.S. LNG online, enough Gulf Gulf oil and gas coming in? Is are we talking about years, months? What are, what are we talking about here? Do you think? So I think this is a really good question. But the the thing that happens when there's a shock to the system. 
is that sometimes things can move way faster than you ever anticipated, right? If you ask someone, how long does it take to build a wind farm in Europe? They would probably say, and I'm, you know, five years, right? Right. But suddenly the EU was like, you know what? <laughs> All <laughs> the regulations that were, you know, would stop this, the normal permitting and, and protocols. No, we're just fast tracking, right? So if you want to put solar panels on your roof, put solar panels on your roof, like do it as fast as possible, just buy them and get them up, right? So there's going to be a lot of that movement i think on the on the clean energy side in particular and then you're seeing suddenly you, you know leaders are getting creative uh, i think it is fantastic actually that the new german government that they have the german greens that are with robert Habeck that are in charge of the energy uh environment ministry the and economy ministry because so he you have someone with the credibility on the on the clean green side but then also gets that look we need to keep our economy going in Germany. And so, you know, Habeck has the credibility they can go to Qatar, try to strike a deal, but then also is pushing on, on the clean energy side. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is dramatic reductions happening in, in consumption of, of Russian energy. I can't remember some of the numbers off the top of my head, but going from like 50% to like 35% of, of Russian oil and gas consumption. So doing that really dramatically, building infrastructure nodes very quickly, there's been a lot of uh, getting off the Russian power grid uh, mm -hmm. that has been done by you know some of the Baltic states, by Ukraine, for instance, giving Ukraine access to the European grid. So a lot of these things are just like happening because it, they're happening as if this is a wartime emergency environment, which it is. But that said, it's going to take years. And there's a limited supply of global LNG. Uh, and you know some of the challenges is that as much as you know if Europe gets more LNG, it's sort of stealing from Asia. Right. Then you have power plants that were basically going to run on natural gas now turning to coal in Asia. So is that hurting the climate transition? Uh, is Europe holding back the climate transition? So all these things are going to be balanced. And I think what we have to step back and you know prior to the war, prior to you know the tanks rolling into Ukraine, you know the U.S. perception was like oil and gas not on the table like a we're not us wasn't super interested in going there and neither would be the europeans because they're just mm. so dependent and that changed dramatically where the europeans are really the ones pushing this and i think what you see is this huge pivot uh and a rejection frankly of the german energy approach of the last i would say decade but mm. going back much further to de be dependent on russian gas and think that you know, treating Russia as basically a big gas station that, you know, if we keep buying their resources, that they'll establish a good relationship. Which had um, the opposite also, effect, yeah. I, I think this is a huge impact of the war will be in five years, we're going to look back and Europe will have undertaken just a dramatic transition where it is, I think, going to supercharge itself as a, as a clean energy leader, but also will have done a, a tremendous amount on, on the LNG side and figuring mm -hmm. out how it can get off Russian gas and Russian oil. And I think there's going to be a big delta problem for Russia where Europe is going to move faster than Russia can build its pipeline and other connections to, to Asia. So I think that's going to have a real energy problem mm. for Russia, I think, you know, in the out years. So this is a years long process, but it's being done as if we, you know, as if the Europeans need to do it by next winter, because they, in some ways they might need to. So just dramatic transformation happening in the last few months. I mean, something that would really, really expedite this is if Germany and Austria would drop their bans on nuclear power. Uh, that would really, really move the ball. It wouldn't, wouldn't solve the problem all by itself, but it would really move the ball a lot yeah. faster, I think. Well, one of the problems on nuclear, and this is where you get into the, the long time horizon, nuclear is one where, you know, 
you can't really short circuit the safety uh, safety protocols. You could probably see right. certain things you can do to expedite, but then you're going to see a huge expansion of nuclear. And I guess my basic view is that now's the time where it's just about making investments all over the place. You're not sure when exactly the clean energy side, you know, with the battery technology is going to be there to deal with the intermittency. Uh, you're, you know, you want to invest in, in nuclear because that is just, you know, clean and, and reliable. And you're going to have to keep investing in the fossil fuel side because we're seeing if you don't, then you cause this huge problem. So it's just about, you know, overbuilding, I think, the energy infrastructure. You know, that that's, will be a good problem to have if in 10 years time Europe overbuilt its energy infrastructure right. and it's got just a tremendous supply of, of energy at its, at, at its fingertips. Well, that's a good optimistic note to shift gears on. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how through things like sanctions, defense assistance, and intelligence sharing, the United States and European allies are building a whole new template for confronting Russian aggression. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the Power Vertical podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. From the sinking of the Russian flagship, the Moskva, to the killings of top Russian generals, to the battles of Kiev and Kharkiv, there is no doubt that the Ukrainian armed forces are overperforming in a spectacular way, and for that, they deserve a lot of credit. But they're also getting an assist from the West through things like intelligence sharing, defense assistance, and sanctions designed to weaken Russia's military capacity. Max, I wanted to pick up here in the second half on a conversation I had on last week's program with General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. Um, and what we were discussing, what I want to discuss with you as well, is are the United States and the Allies creating a new template for a new form of warfare to be used in conflicts where we have a clear interest but do not wish to send troops? Because it, it certainly looks that way to me. Does it look that way to you? I, I think so. I mean, in some ways, we had already thought about this and done this. And this goes back to the Cold War period, where first with World War II, we did lend lease. But then one of the things that we figured out was that actually security assistance is a critical part of U.S. foreign policy, of U.S. security strategy. And so 1961, we did the Foreign Assistance Act, which then sort of cemented security assistance as this tool that we were going to be using. And we've developed, we have a whole security assistance system bureaucracy, one that I worked on extensively when I was in the State Department, including for Ukraine. And I think one of the things that we see with Ukraine uh, is both the value of U.S. security assistance, but then also we weren't just providing anything that country wanted. It was very targeted. We did a lot of focused on trying to develop the kind of spine or backbone, the logistics of the Ukrainian military. And then 
uh, with this conflict had developed a strong security relationship prior to February 23rd. And then after that, after the war had started, therefore had the contacts and connections to be able to get more equipment in fast and reliably and to know what the Ukrainians need, what they could absorb, what they could, could use on the battlefield. So I think we're going to have to adapt our systems going forward to, I think, use this as a model for how do we do security systems? How do we prepare for to support potential partners uh, in a conflict like this, whether it's Taiwan or whether it's another democratic state that is under threat that needs, you know, critically needs to be um, strengthened right away? Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned Taiwan. I mean, you, we know the Chinese are watching this. My instincts tell me they're going to think twice before making a move on Taiwan, seeing what we've done. Because when you look at this, it, it almost looks like we wargamed it. I mean, if you go back to before the tanks rolled and all the you know the strategic release and declassification of intelligence, that was remarkable. I never you know, saw, saw anything like that before. Yeah. And they were used partially to get inside Putin's head. This is partially a PSYOP basically, right. to mess with Putin's head, make him think he's got a mole. I don't know if that stuff came from a human source or not, of course, I don't know. But uh, but the administration certainly seemed to be making it look like it came from a human source, even though it probably, you know, maybe it was the, the product of signals intelligence, creating this paranoia inside the Kremlin. And we after this, we, we saw the, you know, the arrests of these top officials in what looked like a mole hunt uh, yeah. in, inside the Russian elite. You had the use of intelligence to help Ukraine with its targeting. I mean, it's, there were reports that there was U.S. intelligence involved in the killing of the generals, the sinking of the Moskva, then the release of that intelligence. Right. And yeah. then Biden, you know, reprimanding people for the leaks when I actually think those leaks were in intentional. That, those, you don't have an accident. You don't leak something like that without authorization, I, I, I think. So, I mean, I, the, 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 the way intelligence has been used in an incredibly creative way, the weapons and training programs, bringing Ukrainians outside the country, training them on U.S. weapon systems, and then they go into tra training the trainers. They can go in and, yeah. and train others. This all seems like it doesn't seem like something that was thrown together after February 24th. It looks like something that we wargamed. The coordination with the Europeans on sanctions and other things in defense assistance. Does this look like something that they, they, they had a game plan here and were ready to just roll it out when they, they needed to? I'm not sure they had sort of a set game plan. But when we started to see, the U.S. started to see Russian tanks and forces aligned around Ukraine back in the fall, and started to get a sense that this was real, I think then you had people really get to work. So there was a lot of preparation done, I think, in you know, roughly the three months before Russia invaded about what we were going to do on sanctions. We've also learned all the lessons about Russian disinformation, which is that this was a huge frustration for me when I worked in at the State Department. You know, on the, like the non-proliferation account, we would see, you know, oh, we need that country to stop that ship because that has a missile component going to you know North Korea right. or some other country. And we tell you know the port and the country that where that ship is stopped, you need to stop that ship because it's got something that needs to be stopped. And they would say, well, show us the goods. And maybe the intel that we had could totally be shared, but the default response from the IC was usually no. Like we don't really expose or share intel. And oftentimes for very good reasons, and we need to be careful about that. But in this case, what we decided is that actually revealing what we know that isn't actually revealing sources and methods, you know, sources and methods can really be quite expansive, but really drilling down on, on that question and then saying, you know what, let's like open the books. When we find something, we're going to reveal it, I think is a, was a real innovative um, step 
because we learned from 2014. We learned that when you know Putin sent out little green men in Crimea and the Russians said, that's not us, and, our, and the State Department response was, we think it's likely them, but we didn't definitively say it. We didn't really put out intel. Right. We revealing everything we knew. That, that, that led to the press to, to cover it in sort of a both sides way. When it comes to the security system side, look, we have a lot of experience in getting stuff to, you know, into a conflict very quickly uh, and moving very fast. You did all, you know, wars in the Middle East and, and other experiences there. Not always successful. Uh, I think the difference here is that the Ukrainians, uh, for the last eight years, knew what they were doing. They knew what their objective was. They knew what the fight was. They knew what they were preparing for. They were very focused on it. And then U.S. support. And this is something, you know, I was strongly opposed when I was in the State Department to the lethal assistance ban, uh, to preventing mm -hmm. us from providing Javelin missiles and other things early, early on. But it had one side benefit, I think, in retrospect, is that when Congress gives you like hundreds of millions of dollars and then you can't spend it on expensive things that go boom, right. it's really hard to then figure out what you're going to spend the money on. So we're like, okay, well, we'll focus on radios for you know, you, for Ukrainian forces, so they're not using Russian cell phones to communicate, right? right. And that's, like, expensive. And we'll focus on, you know, vehicles so they can move around. We'll focus on training. So you start figuring out ways how to spend money that isn't on the shiny, fancy object that you see a lot of folks in the Middle East always getting and always gravitating for. So that, I think, set a bit of a, a base. And then once lethal assistance was able to be provided, right, you had the solid foundation, and then, then it's just, boom, here, but then we still weren't providing the super high-end fancy stuff. It was, you know, anti-tank armor. It was small arms. So things they could directly deploy in the fight. And now that Ukraine has some breathing room, we can expand the aperture. We can start providing the more Western systems. I think where the, how this has progressed has made a ton of sense, has been incredibly well sort of designed and thought out. And it's not necessarily because there's a master plan, I would say, but because we had a lot of practice. We this was this truly was a whole of government effort. In the last, I'm sort of going up. As a lot of people say, we should get weapons. We should have gotten more weapons in earlier. I say, of course we should, obviously. But what people don't understand is that when you're, you know, at state or the Pentagon and you have the security assistance guy, you only have so much money, and there's only a hundred million in what is called presidential drawdown. And what is presidential drawdown? It's the ability to take things from U.S. forces and send it to the fight. Uh -huh. Everything else we have to like buy from a company. It comes off the supply line and then we ship it, right? So to actually take from U.S. forces requires like the president to approve it and require Congress to expand the amount of budget. You know how hard it is in peacetime to get one-star general to say I'm cool with losing my javelin missiles that we train <laughs> on. It's like not, you know, that's not right, a good bureaucratic. Right. It's just really hard. But once the war happened, it's a whole of government effort. Let's go, let's go, let's go. All that bureaucratic uh, moves away and you can really move. And we're moving, you know, an ex like an unbelievable amount of equipment to the point where Ukraine's getting more security assistance than Israel this right. year. And it's not well, for F-35s, right? Well, yeah, and I, I was looking at the numbers and once this 40 billion passes Congress, we're going to be giving Ukraine over 50 billion in military assistance. Now, just by way of comparison, the Russian military budget is 659 yeah. Right. So we're giving Ukraine almost the equivalent of the Russian military budget. And then, I mean, Len Lease, this I mean, if I understand Len Lease properly, it gives the president the unilateral authority to, quote unquote, lend yeah. anything he wants to the Ukrainians, anything he wants. I mean, is that I, I, 
that is sort of my understanding. And I think the Lend-Lease bill is important. It's really important symbolically. I think basically the president had been given the authority to kind of do much of this already in previous sort of congressional iterations and expanding the amount of presidential drawdown. Because when you lend it, we're basically giving away stuff. Right. And so it's, I think it basically just expands the authority of the president so he's not going to have an issue of hitting some sort of cap or ceiling. The one thing on the, on the amount of money we're providing Ukraine, a lot of that is for economic aid, which is really important. But a lot of it is also thing we have never done, and this gets back to NATO, is we never recapitalized the Eastern European militaries. And so when Poland, you know, everyone now realizes that, oh, wait, Poland is still flying MiG-29. <laughs> like, you know, and we had this ridiculous situation where Bulgaria would have MiG fighter jets and they were literally falling out of the sky, but they couldn't afford to buy new Western platforms. So they went to the Russian defense industry, you know, for like $50 million, said, okay, we'll buy new engines to put in our MiGs so we can patrol our skies against Russia. And, right. and so there's this really bizarre situation that everyone realized after 2014, where NATO countries were dependent on the Russian defense industry, and that was bad. But to do something about it requires a ton of money that Eastern European states don't have. And so what's also happening is with a lot of that funding is I think that's going to countries like Slovakia, when they give away their S-300s, their air or missile mm. defense, what do they buy? Like, so there's going to be a lot of recapitalization that has to go in Eastern Europe. And frankly, it's great that the U.S. taxpayer is stepping up. But this is something that I think the president should go to the EU and go to the Europeans and say, you know what? You should do this, too. And the EU actually just put out a proposal yesterday, the EU commission, to begin to do that. It doesn't have enough money. And I think that's something we should really be pushing Europeans. Right. To say, hey, recapitalizing EU armies and militaries should also be on you because right. you know, you're also rich. So uh, just like us. So so we should be doing this collectively and together. Right. We're bumping up against the end, but I did want to touch on one more thing before we wrap it up, Max. And that's I'm reading um, the great book, The Folly and the Glory by Tim Weiner right now, which is basically about the kind of the political warfare between the United States and the Soviet Union in the early Cold War. Not just the early Cold War, but I'm, the part I'm reading right now is about the early Cold War. And when you look at that, one of the things you think I think is the echoes of the, how much today kind of echoes this um, we were getting our clocks cleaned in the political warfare. The Soviets were doing it to us before we realized what was going on in the early part of the Cold War, and even before the Cold War. And then we caught up and we got damn good at it, right? Yeah. And I'm starting to see this, which is why, again, what we're seeing now basically has echoes of that. Now, there's some contingencies here. When this war ends, there's going to be pressure to lift sanctions, and that's that means lifting a lot of this infrastructure we've created. I certainly hope we don't do that. I, I will be shouting from the rooftops that we should not do that. I'm sure you will be, too. But that said, are we kind of in this 1947 moment right now where kind of architecture is being laid that's going to last for decades? Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think in many ways, I hope we learn some of the lessons where we kind of, you know, sometimes our paranoia got the better of us uh, for a while during the Cold War. But I think, look, we've been in that moment since 2014. You know, I go back to the 2016 election when, you know, Russia interfered in the election. And when you just think about it from Putin's calculation, and this is where I think the Russia hand community kind of missed the boat to some degree. Putin interfered in an election against Hillary Clinton with the expectation that Hillary Clinton was going to become president. Yeah. That he assumed that he was intervening against an adversary and to intervene in an American election. I mean, who knew what the response would be, how angry and how, how we would react. 
he wants this conflict. He wants the conflict between, I think, Russia and the West. And that was, I think, the key sort of trigger for me, how committed he is to that conflict. And so I think one of the things that we have done, both U.S. and Europe, that we have spent a lot of time over the last eight years, but really over the last five years, thinking a lot about Russian active measures, Russian disinformation campaigns, Russian espionage. We have a piece out on CSIS uh, today about Russian expulsions of Russian diplomats. So we have really, I think, taken this very seriously. We are now very conscious and, and focused on the potential Russian active measures threat. So Russia, I think one of the challenges was that there was no red lines of what was acceptable and what wasn't in this sort of political warfare environment. During the Cold War, there weren't red lines established. We kind of had to get there to figure out what were the right. rules of the road in the espionage game. And I think we're in this sort of somewhat dangerous period where we don't quite have the rules mm -hmm. of the road, especially when it comes to cyberspace. Right. Uh, and so I think we need to be prepared, ready, constantly vigilant, because I think while we have developed a degree of resilience, while Russia doesn't have the element of surprise, they're creative. They're coming mm -hmm. at us. They have a huge intelligence apparatus. They're thinking very carefully about it, but it's going to be harder for them. When we evicted all the oligarchs, we were also evicting, you know, key nodes of potential influence that, right. that the Russians use. So, you know, this was a, an intelligence disaster for them this war. It was an influence disaster in terms of losing the economic access through the oligarchs. But this is, this is, I think, a longer term effort that we we really need to be focused on. And frankly, we weren't. We weren't, right. you know, in, as the United States under the Trump administration, the Obama administration didn't take it seriously in 2015 and 2016, calling Russia a regional power. So we can't, the tendency will be to go back to view Russia as weak after this war, yep. that we can focus elsewhere. And that is, I think, what Russia will count on. And that's what we, we can't afford to do because then will be exposed. And and I think that's yeah. where the response will come. Yeah, this goes back to our mutual friend, Michael Kaufman's article with Andrew and how we never right-size Russia. We either think they're much stronger than they are or, or much weaker than they are. And I would add the success of the Russian active measures campaign prior to, to February 24th was, was predicated on the fact that they were integrated into the Western economy. And that is now removed. So we are in a yeah. lot, of, in, in some uncharted territory right now where Russia was getting the benefits of the world economy, but using it it, it was but was weaponizing it. Um, and I think back, you know, to a piece I wrote back in 2019, arguing for a whole series of policy moves that I called hybrid containment, yeah. um, that at the time was a wish list that I just never, ever expected to see the light of day, but I wanted to get it out there. Well, it's all policy now. Right. It's all policy now and more stuff that I didn't even think of as policy now that I wish I had thought of at the time. So well, this, is, this, is, this is why think tanks exist. This is why we put out wish lists, because you think when you Right. You know what? What should we do? And then it's, oh, it's tough. It's not going to happen. And then a crisis happens and they take what's there off the shelf and they right. need ideas. And so the final point is that Russia is going to have a real capacity problem that they've mm -hmm. sort of been they have been punching above their economic weight. But their ability to recapitalize their military, to maintain their Russian defense industrial connections to countries like India, it's going to be a real question for them going forward as they're squeezed economically. So what do they have? I think we're going to see a lot of nuclear um, saber swagger yeah. and saber rattling. And then I think the active measures side, which is something that we just have to keep really paying attention to.
Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good note to wrap it up on. Uh, I think we're just about at the end and I don't want to upset my production team. So that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. has been former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks, Max, for an enlightening discussion. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in working order throughout our discussion. And I'd also like to introduce the newest member of the Power Vertical team, Dylan Holberg, who will be handling our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in and if you do please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team <laughs>